The Embarrassment of Christianity, Part 2. In Part 1, I kind of set up a brutal question. Is the way that we do communion in church treacherous? Now, in terms of how we display our devotion to Christ, we examine being embarrassed versus being exuberant. I think the kids call it being extra. Um, we hinted that while the ritual of communion, when done in a church setting, should be orderly, our hearts should be bursting with joy and eager for more. I think the directive is bigger, not just about communion, but about the whole Christian experience. So, in this episode, and in actual lived Christian experience, communion is a proxy for the whole lot. I can't help but hear Paul say circumcision every time I say communion, and as I flesh this out, the anachronistic analogy gets stronger. So, For the Old Testament Jew, to be circumcised was to be set apart as God's chosen. For Paul, belonging to God is a matter of the heart, symbolized by baptism and communion. The feelings and desires we are examining here in this episode start in the heart and work their way to the surface, not the other way around. The truth of the matter is that only being circumcised or only being baptized or only taking communion is not enough. There must be something more going on. Now, the last episode also left us with a set of rhetorical questions that give shape to this point and whose answer is each in the affirmative. The questions were, in speaking of Holy Communion, one, are we not symbolically at least taking part in a meal that gives life like no other? Two, is it not an eternal ration that should be ingested as opposed to consumed with both reverence and eagerness? And three, and this is where we'll focus or start today, Shouldn't we desire to go back for seconds, thirds, and so on until we are filled or until we are refused? If we go back for more, when we go back, we will not be refused. We will be filled to overflowing. Show me a place in the Bible where someone who seeks God or Jesus is refused. It doesn't happen. Ultimately, in fact, through Jesus, God does just the opposite but offering acceptance to all people. Uh, see Galatians 3.26-29 here. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, God may say no to requests, he may delay our timeline, and he may bring justice or judgment, but God's people are not refused. Check the full context of any place where this assertion seems false and you'll find one truth. God does not refuse his people. They we are the ones who refuse God. In the wake of our existence, in our parades and in our dances, touch and see and behold the wisdom of the party. Essential in our lifetime and irresistible in our touch. 
with great spirits proclaiming that capitalism is indeed organized crime and we're all the victims. And those are lyrics to the song Refused Party Program by the band Refused. Now, if you don't mind my punk, we are the Refused Party Program. But unlike the band Refused, we are not refusing bourgeois ideology and capitalistic structures. We are refusing to fully accept or to enjoy God's gifts. Possibly worse, we take part in the gifts meagerly, almost as if we're embarrassed to take them. Why? Some feel as if we don't deserve them, which is debatable. Some feel as if they are not meant for us, which is constitutionally false. And too often, we refuse to accept what God shares with us because we want to get it for ourselves. Is this not the plot of Genesis 3? Man and woman refuse to obey God's wisdom and choose to take the fruit of knowledge for themselves? In everyday life, it's really not so simple, though. I can't believe anyone would refuse God's gift without some external coaxing. So, back to our topic, I don't think anyone intentionally chooses to be embarrassed or anxious or ashamed. I don't think anyone wants to feel those things. I do think that some of those feelings are unavoidable, even natural or hereditary. For example, I'm naturally shy. Not too bad, but definitely more so than naturally confident. I would choose the opposite if I could. Similarly, science shows that anxiety is natural in all of us. A little keeps us from being too cavalier. Unfortunately, for some, it is paralyzing, and nobody would choose to have a panic attack. But the embarrassment and anxiety that we are looking at is not the natural kind. It is the type that is synonymous with shame. And shame is not a natural state. Play that again, rewind it, and believe it. Shame is not a natural state. We aren't born ashamed. We are born in the same state that Adam and Eve were created. We don't even know we are naked until someone tells us. We are not created to be ashamed. We are created in God's image. Shame, then, must be a product of something else. But if it is antecedent, what precedes it? And why do we refuse? As emphasized before, we do not refuse the ways of our world. To the contrary, we actively or tacitly accept them. The ideology of the capitalist meritocratic model demands that we earn what we get. We are sold, I mean, told that a gift is nice, but one can only truly be proud of what one earns. By definition, wages are earned and gifts are not. As we will see, to labor is imperative and one does deserve one's wages. But our society wrongly tells us that we must be able to buy, or at least perpetually rent, our status. In fact, to be reliant on the gifts of others is shameful in our society. And for the proud person, an undeserved gift will be refused. Um, in a podcast I listened to by Tim Keller, which I'll put in the note, um, he says... 
anxiety is always a refusal to see how much God loves you. So why do we refuse God's gifts? Um, as we see in Proverbs 11:2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. The easy answer is pride. Anybody could tell you that. We could find a million examples in the Bible to support such a claim. Adam and Eve's pride to want to know the things God knows. Cain's hurt pride over God's reaction to his offering. Jonah's self-righteousness toward the Ninevites. Peter's pride at the Last Supper saying he'd die with Christ. His pride in the garden when he physically defends Jesus. And during his trial when he actually denies him. Pride precedes shame in each of these cases. We can easily find infinite analogies to each of these examples in our daily lives, but it is the last example that I find the sneakiest because it is the hardest to admit relation to. Peter's denial of Christ came as an act of self-preservation. In his attempt, or his working, to avoid the wrath of public opinion, you know, an onslaught of negative tweets or replies on a Facebook post, um, Peter's pride manifested three times as denial, then exhausted his pride's final exhibition showed as its inverse, embarrassment, shame. Now, remember, Peter accepted the bread and the cup at the Last Supper. He did so only partially, though, because he could not accept the gift that came along with it. Jesus dying on the cross. When he had no choice but to accept it because it was about to happen, he refused a gift Paul would later identify to suffer with or as Christ. And this may be the hardest gift for all of us to accept, even for those of us willing to accept his death as a gift. Our death is a whole nother situation. Shame versus death. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, the scene in which Peter denies Jesus is depicted as being in the streets of Jerusalem with a bustling mob following the impending punishment of the Christ. The accusation of Peter's affiliation with the condemned Jesus piles anxious bewilderment onto his prematurely saddened state. In his anxiety of being associated with Jesus, Peter panics as if he has been exposed and thus attempts to hide his identity. Not knowing how to respond or what to do, Peter tries to save himself. Now Jesus told him what was going to happen. You know, he, he laid out the whole thing. Yet Peter, in a lapse of faith brought on by trial, tried to save himself. Unfortunately, today we can all relate. Social media and 24-hour quote-unquote news cycles bombard us with so many conflicting opinions that every five minutes someone is telling us that we are in some way naked or exposed. There's something about being on Twitter and Facebook that allows its users to expose the truth 
about other users. Please note the hard sarcasm there. That truth is always the same truth, that anyone who disagrees with the post author is wearing the emperor's new clothes, wantonly accepting a lie that ultimately leaves us exposed as a fool. This constant deluge of judgment is anxiety-producing. It can easily have us feeling like Peter amongst the mob. Fortunately for most Americans, or probably for all Americans, we won't ever face literal death for our Christian beliefs, especially ones we only post online. Now, we may experience any point on a continuum of figurative deaths, such as the loss of friendship or relationship with family members even. Or we may only lose friends or followers or likes or retweets. While the former losses affect our in-real-life lives, and the latter interactions may only be virtual, all of our resultant feelings are real. I'm talking about stepping on a Lego reel. The fact is, it can be very hard to remain steady when our beliefs are constantly challenged and some aspect of our identity is on the line. So what can we do? A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment. That's from Ecclesiastes 2, 24 and 25 from the NIV. Now, let's look at Matthew 20, which gives us the parable of the laborers. Um, I hope to give a good synopsis, but you should really read the whole thing for yourself to get the full feel for it. Essentially, day laborers are hired to work a vineyard at different times throughout the day. One group is hired first thing in the morning, then another at 9 a.m., then noon, then 3 p.m., and finally 5 p.m. At the end of the day, they all get paid the same amount. Now, Jesus states that the moral is that in the kingdom of heaven, the, quote, last will be first and the first will be last, end quote. Now, we will tease out the nuances of the story, though, to see a little deeper into it. Do you play fantasy football? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't. Uh, But you may remember picking teams for kickball in elementary school. So a similar dynamic is at play when one selects day laborers. Simply put, those who are most fit for the job are chosen first. Treating the parable as an accurate reflection of real life, there is likely a reason that the workers picked up later in the day were not selected earlier. Just like in sports, there's a bit of shame in being picked last. Now, according to Abdu Murray in the book he co-authored with Ravi Zacharias called Seeing Jesus from the East, um, he says that in the region where Jesus lived and taught and told this parable, to not have had work would have been shameful for a man. And normally, the men not picked by 9 a.m., but definitely by noon, these men would likely have not gotten work at all that day. 
if they never received work, they may have had to lie about it when they got home just in order to save face. It's easy to imagine the workers in this story refusing to return home early for fear of being shamed. But we can also imagine a humility or a humbleness that made them stay and wait. Fitting with the outcome of the parable, I think the workers lingered in the parking lot of Jerusalem's Home Depot out of sheer hope. I think that there is some honor in the men who continued to wait. They could have gone out to beg or steal or maybe just go get drunk. They could have believed pride's lie and given into temptation of self-preservation. Instead, they showed humility in their perseverance. And when the time came to go to work, they accepted it like a gift. And at the end of the day, all the workers were rewarded the same. But I imagine that to the ones whom were picked last, the reward carried also a scent of being a gift. Jesus includes in his parable the jealousy of those who felt they had done more to earn their wages and also felt like they deserved more. Now, recall, in the same way that Mary loved much because she was forgiven much, the late hired workers probably loved much because they were gifted much. To our eyes, not everyone is gifted the same way, or the same amount, or at the same time. Not everyone is a preacher or a missionary or whatever. Not everyone can sing, and not everyone is comfortable raising their hands while they sing. Not everyone responds emotionally. Some respond intellectually, some physically. But the Bible does tell us that everyone has a gift, the gift of God's love. We also have God-given gifts, our talents, Um, and if you don't know what yours are, you should ask someone you trust because they probably just see something you don't. We should be comfortable with our gifts and comfortable sharing them. At the same time, embarrassment can cause us to waste our gift, but to waste our gift is the greater shame. That would be the real thing to be embarrassed by, wasting your gift. Don't forget, The Bible teaches us that everyone who can work should work. So we cannot allow shame, guilt, anxiety, or embarrassment, whatever we call it, to cause us to refuse to put our gifts into action. Not only will we be rewarded for our labor, but we will find out that the ability to labor is the result of a gift. Let me say that again. The ability to labor, the ability to do work is the result of a gift. Only by accepting the gift from the master can we put in any worthwhile work. And it is never too late to start laboring. A quick tip here. Perhaps the laborers who did not go home were only kidding themselves that they would get work until they finally received the work. Similarly, you may have to fake it until you make it to find your gift. If you do, fake the talent or the skill or the confidence, not the love for the gift, not the love for working. Paul warns us that doing things that look like church without love is being 
only a clanging cymbal. Our worship should make noise, not be noise. So the table is set. As we look to Revelation 3.20, it says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The offer is always already on the table. The bread and the cup sit and wait. We only have to accept it. There's no way to earn it or be good enough for it. In fact, that's what makes it a gift. So we look to Romans to reinforce this, Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. A gift is given. A reward is earned. Either can be refused, but only one, a reward, can be demanded. A gift is always undeserved, but there is always a greater reason that it is given. Perhaps it is this imbalance that imparts a fragment of embarrassment in the reception of a truly great gift. Again, we should look at children for the proper way to accept a good gift. I think it suffices to say that a child never says, you shouldn't have, or I can't accept this. Nevertheless, at some point, we learn to refuse gifts and be embarrassed by accepting them. The greater the gift, the greater the embarrassment. But as Christians, this embarrassment is an embarrassment of riches. As Christians, this is the only embarrassment we are left with. In Christ, our only embarrassment is embarrassment of riches. The end.